Good morning, good morning. If everyone can make their way back to their seats. Oh. If everyone can make their way back to their seats, that would be great. Better. All right, can you hear me? Yes, sweet. That's half the battle right there. With, with my unique voice, it's always a battle. Good morning and welcome to Community Life Church. If you don't know who I am, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad, yeah. We're so glad you decided to make this a part of your week. So I have a couple of announcements that I'd like to share with you guys to start the morning off. And so um, August 29th, so that's the last Sunday of this month, we will be having a youth interest meeting. And so what's going on there is if you have a youth or someone going into middle school or older to high school, uh, or you're interested in serving with youth, or you're a parent of a youth, or you are a youth, and I think I said that twice, we would love for you to be there. Um, am I still giving feedback? All right. So August 29th, youth interest meeting, be there if you need to be there, or be square. And then September 19th, so that's also a Sunday, we'll remind you guys, don't worry, September 19th, we having, we're having a team's celebration slash meeting. So we have been meeting back in person for 20 weeks. 20 weeks, yeah, that's awesome. After a year away, it's good to be back and make that a normal part of our schedule. So uh, that'll be September 19th after service. If you've served on a team at all, or you are serving or going to serve on a team, we would love for you to be there. Just kind of get some more training slash celebrate what God has done over the last 20 weeks. A couple more announcements. Uh, starting September 23rd, September 23rd, I got a pamphlet. We will be starting Seasons of Life. I see you, Linda. And so we'll be starting Seasons of Life. It's a woman's Bible study, and it meets on um, Thursday mornings. Yes, Chris, you're gonna help me out. So see Linda after service in the courtyard if you have any questions. It's Thursday mornings. 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. It is definitely something, if you can be there, I would encourage you to be there. It's a great fellowship. It's been going on for 40 years. 40 years. That's longer than I've been alive, which isn't saying much, but 40 years. So please, make it a priority if you can. Final announcement. We're, we're getting there. Awana. Awana starts. Yeah, that's awesome, right? Awana. And that's a ministry that's happening across the world that we take part in as a church. It's for children, and we are looking for volunteers, as well as if you have a child, we would encourage you to bring them to Awana. If you have any questions about any of the announcements or anything else, go find Tyla. She knows everything. All right. I think that's it. That's all my announcements. If you would, stand with me for the reading of the scriptures. This will be in John chapter four uh, in the New Living Translation. It says this. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. 
Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Closing. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us to our own devices, God, that even though we walked away from you, that Jesus came to rescue us and to invite us back to you. We just pray this morning, God, as we look into your scriptures, as we dive into what your word says, that we would respond and be the kind of people you want us to be. Lord, give us hearts that are moved by your spirit. Give us eyes to see what you have to say and give us um, a mind that retains this information and may your spirit transform us into who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor David preached a message called, We Are to Be a People of Mission. A People of Mission. And so if you missed that message, I would highly encourage you to go find our podcast on on iTunes or on our website to to listen to that message because it's kind of like a precursor to this one. But following up on that concept that that Pastor David, if I would sum it up, I would say this. This is the summary, but it's way more than this. But the summary is this. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. We exist for the mission of God. But today we're going to be looking at one of the key tenets of that mission, which is evangelism. Now, before you run out the door and get some extra coffee, before you run away, I'm not going to enlist anyone to go knocking on doors today. Don't worry. But, but evangelism, it's one of those concepts that I think we have, we've gotten wrong. We, and not in the sense that we don't know what it's about, but that we think it is what it isn't. Let me explain. Most of us, when we think of evangelism, we think of the bad ways of doing it. We think of Westboro Baptist and their evangelism at military funerals. Or, or, or maybe we even think of the evangelism of the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, where they go knocking on doors and try and talk you into uncomfortable conversations. We usually think this is what it means when we share our faith. We think it has to be done this way because that's all we know. But all these forms of evangelism, they really boil down to a sales pitch. It usually comes like this. You're a sinner. I've got the gospel. I've got what you need. And then I trade. And then now you just give up every Sunday for the rest of forever. And you give me 10% of your money. And you're good to go. 
But that's, that's a really bad boiling, boiling down of the gospel. That's not what the good news is. That's such a misunderstanding of what the good news is. What if, what if sharing our faith was less about convincing people that they need the good news and less about us trying to talk people into coming to church? What if instead it's better? What if, maybe just what if, what if evangelism is experiencing Jesus? What if it's experiencing forgiveness of sin? What if it's more than just we do on Sunday, but it's actually a life-changing reality that God invites us into? I hope by the end of today's talk that you will be encouraged and challenged to see the good news as something we invite people into, not something we talk them into. Because it's not about what we have to convince them of. It's about them experiencing and realizing who Jesus is. And I'm not saying that we're not sinners or that we don't need the good news. Don't misunderstand me. Um, But in today's passage, we will see a story of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman. Now that phrase, Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, that would have blown away the first century. They would have had no concept for this conversation. To us, it's just a Bible story. But But if you think about it, there are a number of barriers between Jesus and the woman at the well. First of all, in in the first century, women and men did not talk in public at all. At all. In in the first century, a a Jewish rabbi would never talk to any woman who wasn't his wife. That was the reality of his time. And Jesus speaks to this woman. This should blow our minds. Like Jesus is speaking to someone, he's breaking the cultural norm. And on top of this, Jesus being a Jewish man and her being a Samaritan woman. For those of you who, who are newer to church, or maybe you need a recap, the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. They couldn't stand each other. The Samaritans belonged to the northern tribe. So just a little bit of history. When Solomon died, his kingdom got split in two. It got split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And eventually, Israel, the northern kingdom, ended up getting carried away in in captivity, and they start uh, marrying people who are not followers of Yahweh. And the result of that is they start worshiping other gods. And so when the Samaritans come back into Israel, or they come back into their land, the Jews hated them for it. And and so the Jews who worship God their way, and the Samaritans who worship God their way, hate each other for this. In fact, it was very common for Jews to avoid Samaria when they were going north. They just refused to go there because they saw them as half-breeds or not ethnically pure. And the Samaritans hated the Jews right back for it. So we see there's all these barriers between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, culturally, gender-wise, religion-wise. There's just no reason they should be interacting, and yet Jesus goes to meet her. And as we read on, these people start talking about religion. Jesus and this woman start talking about worship and the Messiah. But even in those days, religion was not an icebreaker. And and the reason she shifted this conversation was because of her past. This woman has been divorced five times. She's been divorced five times. And and, 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 and we we don't know why she's been divorced five times. It could have been that her husbands were, were awful to her. In that time period, women couldn't just get a divorce because they wanted to the men would usually divorce them and just cast them off. So this woman probably has had all these awful things happen to her. And she's ashamed of it. She's ashamed of of, of the way these people would look at her. And so she goes to the well in the middle of the day. 
I, I lived in Bakersfield. You don't do anything in the middle of the day. You do not go out in the heat if you can avoid it. And, and so this woman who, who all these people are judging her, she'd rather face the heat of the day than the heat of their judgment. And she thought, no one else will be there, but Jesus was. And she met Jesus. And when she met Jesus, her whole life changed. She found out that Jesus knew everything about her. He knew her past. And even though he knew her past, he didn't judge her for it. Rather than judge her for her past, something she would likely have expected, Jesus continues to treat her as a person. Look with me again at verses 25 through 30, where it says this. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well, her, left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Jesus meets this woman, and her only expectation is judgment. Her only expectation is to face his, his glare, not to, not to expect any kind of kindness or gentleness. And this is the God of the universe who has every right to judge her for her past and her sins. He created the law. He, he set the standard. And instead of judging her, he loved her. And he tells her that he is the Messiah. Why is this significant? In, in church, we just assume Jesus went around telling everyone, I'm God. We just kind of have this assumption that Jesus was just telling everyone who he was. But in reality, he often hid it. He often hid who he was from the people around him because he didn't want to mislead them into believing that he was who they wanted him to be. Just the chapter before, we see that Jesus is speaking with a Jewish religious leader whose name is Nicodemus. And when does Nicodemus come? He comes in the middle of the night. He's hiding from the people around him. He doesn't want anyone to know he's talking to Jesus. He doesn't want anyone to know that Jesus is, is, is attracting his attention. He doesn't want anyone to know that he thinks that Jesus could be the Messiah. Nicodemus tries to hide. And, and when he comes to Jesus, Jesus leaves him more confused than he was coming in. It is no accident. I want us to get this. It's no accident that John puts the, the story of Nicodemus next to the Samar Samaritan woman story. A man of honor and prestige comes to find about Jesus in the dark of night and walks away confused. But a woman who is usually shamed is met by Jesus in the middle of the day and runs away in awe. Nicodemus, who teaches about others about the faith, was not entrusted with who Jesus was, but the Samaritan woman was. And this says a lot about the kingdom of God, that it isn't about who's the most prestigious or who's the most useful to God's kingdom. It's about those who see their need for God. That's what Jesus is getting at. So how then does that help us be a people of invitation? What does it mean to be a people of invitation in a world of exclusivity? Well, there are three distinctives I want you to see today about what it means to be a people of invitation, and you can write them down. They're this. A people of invitation embody the love of God. They envision the plan of God and they experience the power of God. They embody the love of God. 
They see the plan of God and they experience the power of God. Let's start with embodying the love of God. We already talked about how Jesus showed these loving actions to this woman. But if if we keep focusing on the woman's past, we actually end up being more like the Jews and less like Jesus. We miss the point of what Jesus is doing. Jesus sees this woman as a person, not her past. Jesus sees this woman as a person in need of God's love, not as someone who's desperately in need of, of, of judgment. Jesus is showing all of us, all of us who follow him, that the standard is to see people how he sees them, not as what they've done. Jesus sees this woman as having infinite and eternal value, and that's why he's willing to break all the cultural norms. He talked to her as a person, one that would have been bewildered by his kindness, and yet this is the basement level, bare minimum qualification to be a people of invitation. If our eyes only see the things in people that we disagree with or judge, we will never be able to be a people of invitation. Or more simply put, in order for us to be a people of invitation, we have to be willing to talk to, befriend, and care for those we think are living lives apart from God. And we must do it in a way that doesn't focus on what we disagree with, but on who they are as a person made in God's image. But still, there's a prerequisite to even that, right? You have to know people who aren't following Jesus to to love people who aren't following Jesus. And this is a radical concept to to the Western church, where we try and build a big bunch of us, we try and get as many of us together as we can every week, and we like, you know, pray for each other, which is good, and then we care for each other, which is good, and we like disciple each other, which is good, and then we avoid the world the rest of the week. We just try and build these holy huddles where we know we're all Christians and we all agree on religion and politics and and, and the way we should live our lives. We just agree with each other and we never go to where people disagree with us. And so we can never love anyone far from God because we don't know anyone far from God. Jesus spent most of his life reaching out to people who religion had cast aside. And I'm not saying this in judgment of you guys. I've found this in my own life. There have been many times in my life, and I say this to my own detriment, where I just don't know a lot of people who don't follow Jesus. And it's not because I've led them all to Jesus, it's because I've left them all behind for the church. And I end up there when I forget that the love of God isn't just for the church, it's for the people who aren't here. Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one, not leaves the one for the 99. If our faith leads us to isolate from the world instead of engaging with it, we are not following the example of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, it says this, though he was God, Jesus himself is God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the position of a humble slave and was born as a human being. The entire incarnation is God leaving the safest place in the universe to come to those far from him. The very God who created everything and breathed life into our lungs came to draw us back to him and invite us back to him. And he wants us to do the same. But here's the good news. He's already ahead of us. He's already working in the world around us. Friends, if you will receive it this morning, Jesus is just as present and working 
in the bar and the brothel as he is in the church and the chapel. Jesus is just as present in the bar and the brothel as he is in the church and the chapel. His presence is everywhere. He loves everyone. There's no one outside the love of God. And it's not that we would judge them and say, we've got something to give to them. No, no. We're just hungry beggars who found bread and want to share it with others, others who need bread. That's the love of God. And he demonstrates this with his own life, constantly going to those who are far from God, constantly going and loving them without any expectation that they will follow him. And it works. The ironic thing is, friends, is that if we go to try and convert people to Jesus, they usually reject him. But if we go to love them and show them what Jesus is like, they might accept him. In fact, if we go thinking we're going to accomplish something, we don't accomplish anything, but if we trust that God will do everything he wants to do with our little step of faith, he'll do a lot. To be a people of invitation, we need to embody the love of God for those who are far from him but it will require us to go outside of our normal safe bubbles and meet real people, not with the goal of saving them, but with the goal of loving them and sharing what Christ has done. Jesus does the saving. Our job is just to embody his love. And this is nowhere clearer to me than uh, what I used to call cold turkey evangelism. And so I went to a church that had a huge emphasis on evangelism, and I am so blessed by it. It's changed my life. I care so much about seeing that we don't just exist for us, we exist for those who aren't here yet. But sometimes, sometimes that that conviction expresses itself wrongly. And what we would do is we would go to college campuses and we'd talk to strangers. We would just start a conversation, say, hey, my name's Jeff. Uh, Do you know where you would go if you died tonight? And that was a tactic that I used. And, And I'm not trying to judge the tactic, but oftentimes, it, even if someone didn't, laugh laugh at me or yell at me, they never end up showing at church anyways. And yet, I have countless friends that if I, those who I know, who I loved, I just cared for them. I just prayed for them when they were going through a hard time. I just told them that God loved them no matter what they were going through. I just invited them to come to church with me on Sunday. They became followers of Jesus. When I was just living a life of just caring for others, I was way more effective than when I went out of my way to try and talk about religion with strangers. And I'm not saying that God doesn't use the other way. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the way of Jesus is just loving those who God puts in our path and caring for them day by day. Love is the most effective way to share our faith because loving people unconditionally is one of the clearest ways that we show the world what God is like. When we love people unconditionally, God tends to show up. Not when we think we have something to offer, but when we just show what what God has done for us. In order to be a people of invitation, we have to embody the love of God. And we also have to envision the plan of God. Look with me at verses 31 through 38. It says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. 
the harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work and now you get to gather the harvest. Jesus tells his disciples that his ultimate food and satisfaction is in doing the work of God. But he moves on from this to talk about the ripeness of the field. Earlier I said Jesus is already working. There's nowhere we're going where Jesus isn't already presently working in the lives of those around us. And the story of the great, sorry, the story of the Samaritan woman is a clear example of this. But I've been there too. I became a Christian when I was in middle school. And the story that, of how God saved me is actually kind of a crazy one. When I was a little, little, little kid, you know, I was little one time, just one time. Um, when I was a little kid, we went to this small church that my grandpa was an elder at. And then, long story short, I got, our family left the church because of some controversy. And so from the time I was like four or five to the time I was 15, I never stepped foot in church, ever. You know, my parents still tried to keep some of the same values that we had had before, but most of the time we didn't pray, we never read the Bible, I didn't hear about Jesus or any of the Bible stories growing up. I just kind of lived as a moralistic person. I just tried to be a good person because I believed if there's a God that he'll judge me based on if I'm good enough. And so I thought that God wanted me to be good. But then when I was in middle school, my dad, who had been working for Vons for like 17 years, and he had been there for a long time. They had the, the uh, grocery strike. I don't know if you guys remember that, but the big grocery strike where all the people had to like, leave their jobs and they went from making barely enough to like having almost nothing. So even though we were living paycheck to paycheck, now we went from that to eating ramen noodles every week. So if you ever have ramen, don't bring it near me because <laughs> I ate it for like eight months and I'm tired of it. <laughs> um, but during that time, I was, often, I was often miserable. I was like, is this the way life is supposed to be? Is life supposed to be so hard? I was just in middle school. I was like, I don't get it. Like, God, if you're good, why are these bad things happening to me? But my dad had peace. Somehow my dad had peace in this situation. I just didn't get it. And the reason was he had begun reading his Bible again. He had begun praying regularly again. And at that same time, completely unrelated, a local church had decided to adopt my family. Christmas was right around the corner. My parents couldn't afford to get us gifts. There were six kids. It was madness. And this little church heard about our family and they wanted to show their love. So they dropped off 50 presents on our porch. 50 presents for six kids is like amazing. It, it's like Christmas day. Okay, not funny. Um, Anyways, but I was confused. I was confused. Why are these people who I've never met, who I've never talked to, why are they loving us? They just left the gifts. They didn't, they didn't come say hi. They didn't ask us if we knew Jesus. They, didn't, they just left the gifts and left. I, I didn't get it. I didn't have any standard of, I was like, why? And so my dad handed me a Bible. He said, this is what they believe. Start reading Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, I start reading about this guy named Jesus, and he does all these miracles, and he preaches really long sermons, and, and then he goes and he dies on a cross. 
and then he's raised from the dead. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. So my dad said, read Romans. And so as I was reading in the book of Romans in chapter three, it says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And it was at that moment I realized, Jesus died for me. Jesus, he died for me. Like I'm the sinner who was separated from God by my actions, but Jesus died for me. And I remember right where I was, I can picture it in my brain right now where I was sitting at that table with my big old headphones and my cassette player, which was playing something at the time. I just remember crying out to God for his grace, saying, God, forgive me, save me. And I wasn't able to articulate the finer points of theology, but I knew enough to know that Jesus' death was for me, and it was God's plan to save me. And I bring this all up because it was that church just loving our family that led me to ask the question, why? It was just them being loving. They didn't have some elaborate evangelism plan. They didn't have this two-step process where they tell me about the law and then about the grace. No, they just loved me enough to care. And God saved me because of it. They didn't know what else God was doing in my life, but their kindness helped me to come to know Christ. That's what happens when we have a vision, when we envision the plan of God, when we see that God is working everywhere around us, not just when we show up, but before we're already there, when we realize that God is holding all things together and working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, when we have that big picture of God's sovereignty, we can take little steps of faith and know that God will do big things with it. And this is what Jesus is getting at. If we just have that big picture view of God's sovereignty, this big picture view of what God is already doing in the world around us, we will know that every little action of love does a lot. And I'm not trying to explain away pain or suffering, but rather that God is already working even in the midst of pain and suffering. Our job isn't to convince or argue people into the faith. I'm not saying there's no place for apologetics. There is. But the most effective evangelism strategy is just to love people where they're at because God is already doing something. Our job is to prayerfully and persistently seek where God is already moving and join him there. We don't have to manufacture moments. We just need to look for the moments where God is already supernaturally working. The fields are ripe for harvest. Everywhere around us, people are searching for real hope. We just need the eyes to see what God is already doing and seeking and joining him there. I'm a huge fan of worship music. I listen to it all the time. But I have like a love-hate relationship with CCM, contemporary Christian music. It goes back and forth. That's not the point. But... About 15 years ago, there was this song called Give Me Your Eyes by Brandon Heath. Maybe some of you know it. And in it, he talks about how there's all these people whose lives are going on, and their lives are going on around him. And, and as he walks through the airport, there's this guy who just lost his job. There's this mom who's trying to figure out how to feed her kids. And, and, and in this song, he's talking about, he's just praying, God, give me your eyes to see the people around me the way you do. Just give me your eyes to see where you're already working. And that should be a part of our regular prayer. God, give us your eyes to help us see people the way you see them, 
to help us love people the way you love them. You're already working, God. I don't need to show up and do it all. You're already doing it all. How can I join you, God? We need to constantly ask God to show us his vision, his plan for the world, and help us to see it with him. In order to be a people of invitation, we need to embody the love of God, envision the plan of God, and we need to experience, and, and we, sorry, and we will experience the power of God. Look with me at verses 39 to 42. It says this. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, now we know that he is indeed savior of the world. Jesus' embodiment of God's love for this woman and his ability to see God's plan for her life led to seeing God's power at work. She walks away from encountering Jesus, a changed woman. She went from this social outcast to one of the first evangelists, from seeing herself as a social pariah to being a preacher of the good news. And this is the power of God, the testimony of all those who believe that we were once this way, we were once separated from God, but now we've been reconciled through Jesus. And that makes us preachers of the, excuse me, preachers of the good news. But look at what she does. She immediately goes to invite those who once looked at her with scorn, and they too encounter Jesus. She once avoided everyone in town because of her shame, and now she goes to everyone in town because of her boldness. Jesus turned this woman who was afraid of people into being a person who loved people enough to tell them. The distinctive we see here is that experiencing Jesus is life-changing, and we should want that for others. Here's an important reminder, though. God will rescue his sheep. He will rescue his sheep. If we don't join him, he will find someone else. In Esther 4.14, Mordecai says to Esther this, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. So it is for the mission of the church. God is going to save people. He's going to do it whether we join him or not. But the question is, do we want to join and experience the power of what he's doing? Do we want to to see God move? Do we want to see God move mountains to bring people back to himself? What good news this is, though, if you think about it, of all the missed opportunities we've had, there's, there's an encouragement. God is still moving. He doesn't need us. But what better news? God doesn't need us, yet he wants to use us to save people, to bring, him back to bring people back to himself. Amen. And this story shows us what distinctives we need to exhibit in order to be a part of this people of invitation. We need to be people who embody God's love, who envision his plan, and then we will experience his power. This is what it means to be a people of invitation, to be like Jesus. But how do we do this practically? I hope to spend the remaining moments I have to show us what this looks like in our everyday life. And there are just three steps, three points, three steps. Good Baptist. And the first step is this. We need to pray. I know. That was the price of mission right there. It was so good. We need to pray. That's like the application of every sermon, right? And yet, if you're anything like me, you may have relegated prayer to like the last-ditch effort. We do everything we can and then pray. But John Bunyan, a 17th-century Christian writer, said, you can do more than pray 
after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Think about this. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. And this is nowhere more true than an invitation because by our own strength and our own power, we will often fall short in one of these three distinctives. We are either not as loving as we should be, or we isolate into holy huddles, or we try and invite people and reason with people based on our own power and our own logic. Inviting people to know Christ is a work fully reliant on God's power. Because as Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So we must begin in prayer, and then we must invite. Yeah, to be in people of invitation, we have to invite. And next week, we'll have cards. So you can, you can hand them out if, that, if that's what you're more comfortable with. Stats show again and again that most people are more than willing to come to church if you invite them. And the good news is that most of the people here are very good and caring and kind. And they're not too crazy. Well, except for Dean and me, but everyone else is not crazy. But, but the goal isn't that we invite them to church just for the sake of them coming to church on Sunday. That's good, and that's a great thing. But really, we want to invite them into our lives. We want to invite them into our homes and into our small groups and into all the hope that we've experienced in Jesus. And the church just happens to be a place where that takes place regularly, where we regularly talk about the hope we have in Jesus, where people can come to experience this community that God is building. And being a people of invitation will require us getting involved in the lives of others, which will often interrupt our normal. I love that song, Lord, interrupt me. Interrupt me. Jesus was the most interruptible person in the whole of human history. Again and again, he stops what he's doing to care for the person in front of him. And that's because he sees people as people, not as roadblocks, not just as another person in your way on the way to do what you want to do. Jesus was constantly interrupted by people. And when he invited them into his life, into his way, he knew it was going to mess up his plan, if we can say that. Anyways, um, so we need, to, we need to pray, we need to invite, and finally, we need to prepare for the messiness of God drawing people to himself. And this is probably one of the least thought of ones, is that when we invite people to church who don't follow Jesus, they're gonna change the things that happen here. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when people come who don't look like us and think like us and, and and don't act like us, it's going to change the dynamic. It's going to change the way things look. Think, think about all of Paul's letters. They were all written to churches that were growing by inviting people far from God, and all the problems came as they sorted out what that looks like. Inviting people who don't know Jesus into a community can lead to some mess, but it's a good kind of mess. We already cause mess without people who don't follow Jesus. Should the carpet be blue or green? Should the wall be red or white? But that also means that we need to think differently. So if someone shows up here on a Sunday morning and they don't look like something you expect them to, or, or, they, or, or they act different than you would expect them to, if they don't think like us, vote like us, they don't have the same view of sexuality as we do, are we ready for them to show up? Are we ready for people who are far from Jesus to be here? Or do they have to clean up before they show up? The love of God always says they're welcome before they clean up. They're, they're welcome before they belong. 
They're welcome. They belong before they believe. That's the way of Jesus. Not that we abandon biblical orthodoxy, but rather we embody biblical orthopraxy. We don't abandon what the Bible teaches, but we practice what Jesus did by being a place where everyone of every different kind of person is treated as an image bearer worthy of love. In conclusion, God wants us to be a people of invitation. And he shows us how to do this in John 4, that we would be a people who embody the love of God, envision the plan of God, and experience the power of God. And this practically plays out as we pray, invite, and prepare. I want to invite the band up to close us in a song. Messages like this can be tough. It can be tough. Because we all have preconceived notions of what evangelism should look like and what it shouldn't look like. And, and some of us, we, we grew up in a time where passing out tracts was the norm, and we wonder why we don't do that anymore. Others of us, uh, maybe from another generation, thought that it was the pastor's job to do all the evangelism. Like, isn't that why we pay you? So that ministry is just for paid professionals? Others of us, like maybe my generation or so, have seen all the problems of evangelism and all the problems the way the church has done it, that we just kind of give up on it altogether. We're like, you know, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe and it's cool. Or we're afraid to come off as being narrow-minded if we share what Jesus has done. But each of us, if we think about it, each of us here have been invited here, whether by family or friends, by a stranger, whatever it is, how we got here, we all had to be invited. And there are myriad, there's a wonderful many ways that God has saved each of us. I'm sure if we took the time, we'd have very different stories but each of us were invited by someone. Here's the good news. We don't have to go in and be the Bible answer man or Bible answer woman. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have all the, the, the reasons for why someone should believe in God. We can just say, this is what Jesus did for me. Jesus loved me and he gave me forgiveness and, and he gave me a spirit to live a life that follows and worships God correctly. And that's what he wants for all of us. Jesus is a God of invitation. And if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we are to be a people of invitation. So, so even now, as we close with this song, How He Loves, I really want us to think about the words of this song. Not just how much God loves you, though that's true and worthy to be praised. God loves you so much that he was willing to leave heaven to come and save us but also think about how much he loves those who still don't know. All the people who still aren't here yet, who, who God loves, and God wants them to know that he loves them, and he wants to use us to tell them. Even as we sing this song, I want our perspective to be how much God loves us and also those who aren't here yet. Let's pray. Father, you, you love us. And you love us so much, God. And you're for us. And you don't give up on us, God. You invited us into your family. You made us new. You gave us new life. You said our past no longer has power over our present. But that you have power to give us new life. 
this morning, God, as we gather as your people to sing songs about your name, to hear from the scriptures, to hear about your love for us and for others. God, I just pray that we wouldn't leave the same as we when we walked in, that we wouldn't leave just like when we came in, God, that something would have happened here today that changed the way that we think about you and others. God, may we not walk away missing your heart. Your heart is always for those who are far away from you. God, may we be a church of invitation. May we be a church where people go out and tell people what Jesus has done, not so that we can have a big Sunday service, but so that more people would know your love. God, we we all remember where we were without you. And we, we shudder to think of the life that we would have without Jesus. But because of Jesus, we have hope. Help us to share that hope with someone else this week. Help us to be a people who prioritize those who are far from you and know that we've arrived in your house only to continue to invite. And God, may this reality that you love everyone in the world as much as you love us, may that change the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.